Tom Barbelay here, recording live at Grand Rails Model Rail Radio. I'm actually recording my hotel room, but this is day one for me, Wednesday the 1st of August. And um, before I begin talking about Grand Rails specifically, I'd like to uh, send a big shout-out and a big thank you to Ed Novert. Uh, Ed had originally planned for quite a few folk to stop by and do a, a operation session on his layout, which should, I guess it was the first operating session that he was going to have since his layout had been put in its new location. Through the related correspondence associated with getting people down, it just turned out that, that I and uh, new listener Terry Gaskin actually were the two folk who uh, who ended up operating on his layout. Terry Gaskin does um, the Chicago L line, which is the, I don't know what you call it, kind of metro subway line that runs through Chicago or runs through a good part of downtown Chicago and uh, nearby uh, suburbs. Terry picked me up at the train station in Chicago, at um, Union Station, which was absolutely wonderful. We went on to Des Plaines Hobbies, which is just a phenomenally good hobby store, actually. Terry was particularly interested in my account of it, because I've obviously given some narrative associated with Bay Area hobby stores. This place had uh, Fox Valley Wheels, which <laughs> it's kind of a starting introduction to what they had. They also had toggle switches and electronics that you would use on your layout, which I've never seen in a hobby store in the Bay Area, at least. And um, in addition to that, they had the Franklin and South Manchester book that Dave Freire put out maybe 10 years ago. They had three copies of that. So in addition to this, these are just kind of my baseline entry things associated with a good hobby store. They also had a wide selection of S-scale brass. And I haven't really had an opportunity to see S-scale properly in the wild. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to stop by the hobby store that actually went out of business in uh, Menlo Park because they were an S-scale specialist. But um, the folks at the dinner tonight, and I went out to dinner with uh, with a few listeners and a few previous participants, um, they kind of joked about me uh, getting into S-scale based on this account. But yeah, Desplane's Hobby is an amazing hobby store. And thank you very much to Terry Gaskin for uh, insisting that we stop by. So we picked up a little lunch and then we ended up at Ed Novitz's place. And Ed... Well, you know, it's been a participant in the show previously. It greeted me by bowing down on one knee and uh, doing the kind of I'm not worthy uh, hand gestures. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shout outs to it. The thing about it is um, you only get a small portion of the Ed Novit experience when you listen to him in the show. When you meet him in real life, you get the full experience. So I'd like to recommend anyone who's going through Chicago, who's a, a regular listener to the show, and particularly the folks that live around Chicago. And here I'm talking about uh, Mike Slater, David Kakoski, all these kind of folk. You really need to stop in on Ed's layout. I mean, I'm sure he'll arrange some little rail radio meetup or something where all these folk can kind of come together because um, Ed's quite the host. He's quite the host. He set the bar pretty high on future model rail radio get-togethers, let me just say that. So um, Terry Gaskin and I operated on Ed's layout, and um, I kind of had a sense of Ed's layout coming into it, because obviously I've talked to him a, a few times previously on the show. But um, to actually run on Ed's layout, it's the subtleties, it's the little things that um, I tried to capture. I put out a YouTube video clip um, with Ed's layout where Ed describes the operations. I'm not even going to attempt to describe the operations. I just recommend you go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash barbelay, which is my surname. Uh, Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Bravo, Alpha, Lima, Echo, Tango in military speak. 
And uh, yeah, you'll see you'll see um, my video associated with Ednote its layout and also some of the other layouts that I've seen. Unfortunately, I have a backlog of video that I just can't upload because the video sizes are too big uh, to upload onto uh, YouTube. But yeah, through my trip, and I've been traveling doing a business trip for the past two weeks, I've seen um, yeah, a couple of layouts, a couple more than I expected to see. So it's interesting, the people I've been meeting, not in any way model rail related, also have layouts as well. Anyway, so you can find that on my YouTube channel. Some points I want to make about EndNote's layout. Firstly, um, all the turnouts and all the flex tracks are from a previous layout. And uh, it's code 100 uh, HO uh, flex track. I think you said it was Atlas flex track. And all the turnouts are Pico turnouts. This layout, aside from a few technical difficulties that it kind of sorted out while we were there, was absolutely bulletproof. And the majority of the layout is from the 80s. Which makes me think that, um, and I know, you know, I've, I've spent some time with Clark Cooning and Tim Morris, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I know we talk a lot about hand laying and all this kind of stuff, but if you are starting out in the hobby and you're looking to create a layout relatively quickly for operations, I think that combination of the Code 100 uh, HO flex track from Atlas and the Pico turnouts is pretty hard to beat when you're starting out. Now, I made the mistake of actually posting this on the Facebook group, group, and I got a lot of, well, not necessarily flack, but certain participants, as I'm sure you'd imagine, didn't necessarily think that that was always the case. I'm going to put that caveat in there. If you're new to the model railroading hobby and you want to get into operations, these two components seem to be relatively critical. The other thing that I found absolutely fascinating was the locomotives that we ran. I think they were RS3s. Don't quote me on that, because the, um, Ed also produced his publication on Railroader, and uh, there was an RS2 in the photo, I think. I may have the RSs out by, by one digit. But they were um, the Atlas uh, locomotives from the 80s with the Cato, or Cato, as you say, in it. And I see, I've seen a couple of these at the NMRA in their, um, whatever, their bidding thing, which I thankfully didn't place any bids on. There was some interesting G-scale, I'll just say. I sat on my hands, so... Folks, um, I will still be a married man when I return to Bayer. Anyway, the point about the Kato um, internals, the, the drive mechanisms and everything, it's just they're absolutely bulletproof. These are locomotives that even through various problems that we had initially with the turnouts and various other things, they just behaved like sensible locomotives. And it makes, it's really quite strange, um, particularly because, you know, we, we are in a hobby where all the new stuff is the latest and greatest, that stuff from the 80s, having this kind of quality to it, it's really noticeable even today. I've thought about this quite a bit, actually. So, from my perspective, and I'm going to just loosely describe what we actually did in operating terms. Obviously, there's um, two ends, two kind of, uh, well, one's more a staging end, one's more an operation end, uh, and then there's the whole central part, which is uh, on one side, um, places where the uh, reefer cars go, uh, both in terms of, well, typically just dropping off fruit, um, a couple of industries that are serviced by boxcars, but mainly a long icing platform and a series of um, tracks and turnouts leading uh, towards this. So the operation typically was either cars coming in or going out, uh, some that needed to be iced and then going to their respective drop-off locations, but just a wide variety of combinations associated with this. Something that I'll note here, um, this was both uh, Terry and my first operating session, uh, and I think I had far by far the easier job. The other thing that I liked is because it wasn't um, timetable train order operation, it was car card and waybill, I could actually choose how I decided to do things. 
um, which I don't know whether it's my kind of professional proclivities or what have you, but I really like that because what I did was kind of tackle the things that I saw on either end uh, with the view that when the jobs were done, the jobs were done. And I don't know, I've not had, obviously had the experience of timetable train order operating, but I actually really quite like Car Card Waybill. I thought it was going to be a little bit too eclectic for me, but actually I really got into it very quickly. And that made me realise that um, I really like operations. It was, um, yeah, I mean... It was also, no doubt, the, the quality of the companionship that I had. And if you're going to be taught operated by anyone, you know, Ed Novit is obviously the guy to be taught by. But, yeah, I had a really good time. And it made me think quite a bit because, obviously, you know, I'm going through this whole kind of G-scale live steam. I know there are snickers out there, but anyway, move on from that. Um, and, yeah, it made me realise that, um, and t- to be honest, I mean, I'd had kind of not formal operating, but I did have some operating opponents at least um, in a couple of my N-scale shelf layouts. So yeah, nice part of the hobby. Nice part of the hobby. So I had an absolutely wonderful time. Uh, Ed and I went out for dinner afterwards. And here's an interesting fact. Ed didn't know about the Inkle Nook, which struck me as really strange. I thought everyone in the hobby of, you know, um, Ed's, I won't say, well, seniority here, not meaning that Ed's extremely old, but meaning that he's well-known, well-liked, and particularly very communicative of the hobby. So, um, yeah, Ed had never heard of the Ingle Nook before. And the funny thing is, Ed basically decompressed the Ingle Nook in about, I don't know, 12 hours. So he dropped me back at the hotel and then he picked me up in the morning. And by this point, Ed was, like, you know, doing all the, uh, doing all the operating potential associated with an Ingle Nook, uh, furiously in his head and describing it to me as he dropped me at the train station. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to get Ed back on a future show to talk about the Ingle Nook specifically. So then I went into Chicago, and um, oh, so I've seen two layouts. The first, um, which I'll have audio for, which may go into this podcast, I'm not really sure, is with Eric Goodman, who's an academic who I stayed with. And I've also got a YouTube video, but no audio, with Roy Plotnick, who is another academic who I stayed with as well. Uh, sorry, I didn't stay with um, Eric and his family. I stayed off-site, but... I went to his research facility, let me get that straight. But yeah, they both had layouts. Uh, YouTube video associated with Eric's is already up, and uh, Roy has uh, a scale American Flyer layout, and a wide variety of scale, like locomotives and a variety of things, but more on the kind of toy train end. He's also friends with the editor of the Escagian, who we've talked about in previous podcasts. Anyway, so moving very rapidly to Grand Rapids, I wrote in Grand Rapids last night and uh, went down the this morning to register and bumped into Matt Goodman and bumped into Seth Newman and bumped into Rob Hinkle. Yeah, I went around and shook various people's hands and then basically came back to my room. My plan was actually to have today off um, because I've been basically doing work-related trip. Um, I knew I was going to have a model rail radio dinner uh, this evening, but that came all crashing down because I got a call from Clark Cooning and he and Tim Werris uh, dragged me kicking and screaming to go and see uh, Bruce Chubb's layout, which is the Sunset Valley of Oregon. And um, it's pretty hard to actually describe Bruce Chubb's layout. I did get some YouTube video, which again, I probably won't be able to uh, upload until I'm back in the Bay Area. At some points, this is a four-level layout. Um, it's a layout, basically, that takes up an extended basement. I estimated that there was at least 3,000 square feet of also, like, relatively small aisle space as well. Um, I did meet a group who were operating there from the Bay Area, which was nice, particularly a fellow of Boulder Creek. I don't actually know the fellow's name, but um, it was nice to know that people are doing model railroading in Boulder Creek because that's very close to where I am. Imagine a layout which includes a, a double-track mainline that runs through the toilets, runs through the restroom area, 
basically every single, like, you know, there's no two feet of floor space that isn't model rail related in this layout. Absolutely, unbelievably extreme. Clearly done by, um, I think the estimate was 16 people working. It's just, it's a phenomenal layout. It's probably one of the last times it's going to be publicly displayed. It's appeared in Model Railroad since the early 70s and just really quite overwhelming um, in terms of just the sheer volume of track space and uh, amazing structures and just tens of thousands of vignettes everywhere. And the four-level stuff is, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. There's a kind of logging component to it. There are various towns. There's like a beachside component to it. There's um, a whole section. I mean, it's it's Oregon, basically. And, yeah, I just, I can't really decompress it any other way. When I got to the layout, this is a somewhat amusing story, I um, inadvertently was kind of pushed into a corner, and then the editor and publisher of Model Railroader turned up. Both of them don't really look like they look in the photos, which was kind of strange, because I saw I saw the, the tall fellow, and um, I thought, that's that looks like the guy from Model Railroader, but it doesn't really look like him. Like, there are certain things that just didn't look right. Well, I mean, look different from the photos. Turns out, yep, they were the Model Railroader guys. And um, it was really quite curious, because um, it was like the King and Queen of England had come. I, I, I don't know. I, I just guess these people are regular people on some level. But um, everything went to a kind of grinding halt. The owner of the lab, Bruce Chubb, and his wife came down and shook their hands. And I was literally, like, I don't know, pegged into three square feet. <laughs> kind of felt that way. I able, was able to break myself through, but kind of going around through the restroom area um, into a smaller section with a fellow who was... I've just met the editor and, and publisher of Model Railroader and saying that just repeatedly to himself. I introduced myself as um, Tom Marple of Model Railroader, but that really didn't matter by that point. So, yeah, that was a somewhat surreal thing. And, um, yeah, then I went out for a uh, milkshake with, uh, with Clark and Tim Morris. I've got to say, Clark Cooning, amazing guy, well-liked by the community. But um, we need to get Clark back on the show because um, he, he voiced some concerns about the, um, the new co-hosts that we have on. Um, so, yeah, wonderful afternoon with uh, Tim Morris and Clark Cooning. Came back and had a, a brief rest period on what was previously going to be my day of rest. And then um, went out to dinner. And the dinner was a bit of a phenomenon because basically there were a number of people who gave their apologies. There's a JMRI dinner that's going on at the same time. So we ended up with five people. Quality, not quantity. So firstly, we had Mike Slater there and his friend Craig. Craig is like a Burlington Northern uh, modeler now. He's gone through a number of phases. He talked about the Sioux. He talked about... Um, uh, What's the Milwaukee line called? Oh my goodness, my mind is gone. Anyway, Milwaukee model rail uh, related modeling. He's currently working on, and again here my, um, <laughs> my use of American terms is probably not the best. He's currently working on like road transport, like road trains, uh, as well. Which, anyway, he talked about that quite, uh, quite a bit. Um, but I'm gonna have to actually see the stuff at the show. Um, because the subtleties of what he was describing. I don't know. There's just so much in this hobby. So anyway, um, so I talked to him quite a bit. Ted Stevens was there as well. Ted was in classic form. And um, I did, however, cause a, a, a slight problem because I mentioned that my wife liked building structures and Ted has a vast quantity of structures. 
So I don't know how we're going to actually work that out, but I would like my wife to uh, see Ted's lout. Ted noted as well that um, folks may remember Ted Stevens as the fellow with the layout in the office park. The office park has been bought by Google, and Ted is going to have to... <laughs> he's going to have to move his layout uh, within the next couple of years by the looks of things. He's taken it on the chin. He's taken it very well. And I think he's going to find a slightly larger space and like run the layout in the centre of the larger space. Also, there's a large section, well, probably about a third of his layout that's unfinished currently. It was associated with a mine, a logging camp, etc. And I put to him that this would be an ideal opportunity, actually, for him to kind of clarify his thinking associated with that section of the layout uh, and get it done uh, in some regard. And um, also, Ted, as you may recall, uses the Cephas product, so basically his layout is effectively sectional. I mean, obviously, he's going to have to cut the track at various points, um, but probably cast it out in... Um, I don't know, maybe 12 foot by 3 foot sections. So, yeah, not a particularly brutal uh, move for him uh, because it's already basically uh, sectional or modules, uh, fundamentally. Um, but still, yeah, an interesting turn of events and wonderful catching up with Ted Stevens. Matt Goodman was there as well. Matt has been to the earlier part of the convention. Uh, we talked a little bit about the um, RPM versus NMRA uh, methodologies, which was an interesting conversation. I have some audio from Terry Terrence that I'm still editing. I'm not sure whether this will come out before Terry's audio or after Terry's audio, but I will put Terry's audio out relatively shortly, given the time to actually edit audio, which in of itself is problematic. Um, but what I will say um, about uh, Terry's audio is there's a section involving Tony Costa where Tony talks about uh, the future of the hobby associated with the NMRA perspective, and I have a distinctly different view, so my hope is if I get to meet and talk to Tony this show, that I will have the opportunity to raise that issue with him in a slightly fuller form because I think it's really problematic. I think basically the NMRA is kind of giving up on like a large chunk of the hobby. It does seem slightly surreal to me. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that if you're not going to actually look out for a certain group, then it's basically like that group doesn't exist. Which, obviously, I feel a little upsetting. Did um, bump into a fellow associate with Joe Fugate, who asked me if I was part of uh, Joe's club, or whatever. Joe's, you know, I, I can't even remember the terminology. It was kind of strange, like, do you know this handshake? Are you this person? I said, um, no, I mean, I've, I've been in correspondence with Joe, but um, I think he quickly worked out that um, I wasn't the droid he was looking for. Just a really nice dinner, actually. Really wonderful to meet uh, to meet uh, Mike and his friend uh Craig, and uh, I think, yeah, Mike in particular, I mean, just a breadth of knowledge in the hobby. We really need to get him, I mean, we do get a, a good opportunity to chat with Mike on a pretty regular basis, but uh, just his level of knowledge with regards to a wide variety of things, really, really wonderful stuff. So anyway, this is my uh, update. I'm going on a very early morning start tomorrow, um, hence I probably won't get this audio out until, I don't know... <laughs> I'm going to have to have a quiet Friday night, I think, by the looks of things. But yeah, I'm basically out for all of tomorrow, and I will give a recorded update when I get back from that, and hopefully also record some audio from that, maybe. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's a show, people are at the show, I don't necessarily want to kind of thrust a recorder in their face and this kind of stuff. It's quite comfortable just being here, um, and yeah, talking to all the folks concerned. So anyway, this has been my update from day one, or at least my day one, at the NMRA convention here in beautiful Grand Rapids. Tom Bartley in Grand Rapids, signing out.